0: because Because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another special mashup episode of T4C. This episode is going to focus on how to bounce back from career challenges and obstacles. These are experiences that we all have and are totally normal, and they are opportunities to learn and grow. As we fast approach our fifth anniversary since T4C launched back in August of 2018, I thought you'd appreciate hearing from some of the incredible 20 somethings who've been guests on T4C over the years so you can learn from them how they move through those challenges. So grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guests include, in order of their appearance, Mitch Pergeson, the founder of Stitched by Mitch, a custom suit company that designs and creates custom suits of high quality and innovative designs. Rachel Sider was a policy and advocacy advisor for the Norwegian Refugee Council. Today, she works at InnerPeace as the head of its executive office. Rob Carp was and still is the founder and CEO of Miles Ahead, a luxury hospitality company. Sam Levin is the business development team lead for the East Coast at Bucketlisters, it's a company dedicated to making it easier to travel and book beautiful experiences all around the world. Ronan Schechter is a full-time freelancer and entrepreneur in the film, commercial, and television industries. He is the general manager of his own company, Go for Row Grip and Lighting, based in Atlanta, Georgia. Ronnie Gianni is the vice president of multifamily lending at Lumet. And today he is also the founder of his own company, Gianni Ventures. Sanam Rostegar was a senior associate at McLarty Associates. She has since held the position of deputy state finance director for Biden for president in the last election. And today she is a member of the board of directors for the Yale Club of Washington, D.C. Serena Tsung was the university relations recruiter for Cox Communications. Today, she is the talent attraction and engagement specialist at Core and Maine. It's a company working to create thriving communities through safe and sustainable infrastructure. Sophia Lorena was a loan officer at CB Loans and the host of the Shit Show of My Twenties podcast. Today, she is a sales development representative at Backflip, a real estate company for entrepreneurs. Timothy Visos Ellie is a co founder and chief product officer at Stride Tech Medical, a startup medical equipment company. And finally, Tyronda Gibson was the sustainable communities pilot manager. At Fannie Mae. Today, she is the Executive Director of Community Reinvestment Strategy at JP Morgan Chase and Company. So I want to ask you about a time you failed in your professional life and what lesson you learned in the process of getting to the other side.
1: When I first started out in terms of pursuing businessmen, lawyers and professional people when I was only 21, 22, I lost sight. And I had actually a very, very great mentor of mine based in Atlanta named John Hearn challenged me on a couple of the things because I actually used him as my first very successful businessman that bought something for me. I was 21. I drove five and a half hours to go measure him. And it's this executive C-suite guy in Atlanta that just kills it, does very well. I presented the fabrics, I measured him. I thought I did great. I didn't really know what, he just was very frank. He said, hey, this presentation's not very impressive. I think you should work on this. The communication over the course of the order was not good. Silence breeds negativity in the service world, remember that. The way that you guys structured the conversation, I felt like I was selling you guys on how to sell me. And so it was a very humbling experience. He's very gracious and it was a pretty cool story. He told me straight up, he said, hey, I know that you don't have a lot going on right now, but how much do I need to buy so that this trip was worth your while? I just kind of looked at him like, I can't believe he's asking me this. And so I told him you know, what I was hoping to make from the trip to cover expenses. And he spent almost double that. I mean, he was so gracious. And so that taught me multiple things. One, he challenged me on presentation Two, he challenged me on communication. Three, he challenged me on delivering what I said I offered. And then fourth, that when I hopefully get to a position of his and I have someone else that's in another situation like I was at the time, to teach it as a learning experience, a learning experience and to challenge them to have a call to action to get better and not just tell them what they were terrible at. And so that was a very, very valuable failing experience for me because it was no doubt a failure. It was an embarrassment.
2: So there are a couple. I think the one that's probably most instructive for listeners is about a time when I finished up with Mercy Corps and I was then working for Oxfam. In Iraq, so also in northern Iraq. And I'd gotten this great job and I was really excited. And because of the nature of humanitarian work, you have people that are cycling through very quickly. And I saw a couple of country directors come through very quickly. So I had three new bosses in the span of four months. And finally, when the more permanent ones settled in, I was halfway through finalizing a big report that we wanted to launch on issues of durable solutions for Iraqis. And what I came up against was a lot of opposition by my new manager to the idea, to the fact that we would have a public report. And what I quickly found was that he was not necessarily a great manager. He didn't really understand policy and advocacy very well. And a lot of his opposition was based on misunderstanding and a lack of real induction into what the issues are in the country and why a report like this would be so useful. And what it meant was that it led to large delays in the publication of the report. It led to a lot of rewriting and deliberation over whether it could be public or private. And it meant that when the report finally came out, I didn't have anyone launching it with me. It became a very solitary experience. And I found that the big lesson was that over the course of this process and through much of my early advocacy work with Oxfam there was that I wasn't bringing people with me. So I had a great idea. I had an awesome report. We'd done some really interesting research, but I wasn't able to bring the rest of the country team my colleagues with me on that journey of making it possible. And so it meant that I then faced a lot of struggles on my own, some of which were self created, if I'd put in the time, maybe from the very beginning to better introduce the concept, to get people on board and to create that buy-in and to address some of the misunderstanding, I would have gotten to a place where we were one team and where this was something that was the product of all of us. And I found that a couple of times through my work, which is that The advocacy element is sometimes misunderstood or it's not as tangible to people who are delivering tents and handing out hygiene items and food to people who are on the move. Right. It seems like a far off pipe dream. And so you have to spend a lot of time educating and working with people and building relationships because you need them right? I needed these team members to either get me information from the field, to proofread and validate some of the information in the report, to go with me to meetings where I was launching the report and engaging with decision makers on some of its contents. And I didn't have them. So it just made the whole process a lot harder. And I think what it means is that especially if you're In a humanitarian space, you don't want to underestimate what quick turnover means in terms of relationship building and helping get the buy-in that you need for the type of work you're doing. If you're doing policy advocacy work, you don't want to underestimate the lack of experience or lack of insight people might have on what you do and your function and how you might be able to add value to what they're doing. And that requires a lot of investment. And I think the bigger lesson is just don't go it alone whether you're the only one on the team that has a certain function or not, you need the rest of the team to get you where you want to end up, even if it doesn't seem like it on the onset, or even if you think you can do it yourself. And what I I didn't really grasp that that was the lesson until I then worked within a policy advocacy team with NRC on Gaza, where it was very clear that we had to function together for us to even see any impact and i only would have learned that if i had worked within a policy team where i wasn't the one in charge right so it sometimes is helpful to not only be the head of a department but to go back and situate yourself as a member of that department to get that other perspective and you begin to understand the necessity of having a team that surrounds you that gets your vision but that they can help you also execute it because you're not going to do it yourself
3: So I have an interesting example and it's a great question. You know, I learned this about a year or so ago about priorities. You know, as great as a business is, in my opinion, your priorities need to be your friends and family, the people that love you and the people who you love. And I had a point in my life where I put my business in front of some of, you know, one of my best friends when he needed me and I wasn't there for him. And, you know, I'm appreciative that he sat me down and said, like, you need to change what's going on. Like, I'm okay now, but This wasn't cool. And that killed me. But I reflected on it, I took it as feedback, and now I know how to prioritize my life. And that was a learning lesson. Look, I'm young and everything, but I learned it the hard way. And sometimes you have to learn things the hard way so that you understand and you never do it again. And today I'm very proud to say
4: that I'll drop anything I'm doing for the people that are important to me in my life.
5: Yeah. I mean, there's a couple that come up in my head. I remember picking a major and I was business and journalism for a couple schools like New York, when I picked that, Maryland was just a better fit. So it didn't really matter what major I was studying. Maryland was a better fit. That's where I got into the journalism school there. So I'll do journalism. Great. I'll figure it out. But really, I think it was during the internships. I think it was when I was at iHeart. I was doing all these different internships and didn't really feel like I was an expert at any... I was waiting for that sign that was like, you're going to love this. And so when I shadowed the radio host, I'm like, great, I'm going to be on radio. 10 minutes in, I was like, I don't really like radio. And I think that was really scary because I'm waiting for somebody to give me the answer. And it just doesn't necessarily work like that. That happens with doubt comes in your brain. You're like, well, what am I actually good at? Did I just waste four years in journalism? You start to boil up. You start to get a lot of different stresses and fears that you're never going to be successful or whatever. For me, I think that's when it was it. It was probably during those internships that some of them felt like I got them because they were connection-based and it wasn't really earned. And I just wanted to prove myself in some way, probably to myself more than any other person. So you have this slate of all these different ways that your life can go. And it can get very overwhelming. And so I think that's when I struggled the most. And the way that I fought against it was kind of trusting that The world was going to work out and not putting too much weight on one individual moment in my life. I knew I was going to learn more somewhere. And when I was going to learn more, I was going to be a force to be dealt with. Maybe I didn't know a lot then, but I didn't feel like that's all I was ever going to know. I knew I was always going to be someone that learned more. Okay. The thing that's
3: sticking out most with me is April 2020, the whole industry is pretty much shut down. That I wasn't all already... and I I wasn't getting a lot of work, and so I was like, I don't know if this is a career choice. this is like a this is a thing I can do, but I'm gonna have to supplement the money with you know I'm gonna have to supplement with something else, whether it be in a restaurant or uh, as a barista, or et cetera, et cetera. I'm go- I'm not going to be able to make this passion a career, and then and it was due to the lack of work. It was due to COVID nineteen. Nobody's working. Everyone's afraid of getting sick, etc. And just time, you know. I think just that time away from any sort of environment, even school, you're like not. You felt like you weren't progressing. You could be, you know, watching YouTube videos and learning, but it's like in practice, it's you're yeah, not getting hired. What difference does it make? What changed? Time went on. People, productions knew how to combat COVID nineteen and vaccinations are all about but covid testing, masking up, getting people back to work was super important. And then I worked August 2020, I worked on Divorce Court as a production assistant for 2 weeks, uh, doing manual labor, driving a box truck from their storage unit, picking up furniture to then drop in the green room for the talent members, doing that 5 times a day from airport to midtown, airport to midtown. And through that, I met a DP who got my contact and he hired me, hired me, hired me on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And it would be the gaff, the little, little documentaries or little interviews for corporate clients. So, like, and I was, so I was making money. And that was like the first time I was making money off of like invoice, not just, not as a W-4, no 9-9. I mean, this is pre-tax, but it was like a different form of revenue than I was originally used to. And so I just got work and the work kept coming. And then I realized that if I, Owned equipment that maybe I could get that hired out too, and so I bought one light. It got hired out. I've probably paid off the light a few times already. Now that I think about it, like I, I don't think I have the spreadsheet to, to add it all up, but I've probably paid off that light plenty at this point. And so it was just investing in myself is what helped, whether it be by you know doing those YouTube videos that maybe or may not had an immediate effect, and getting more confidence, knowing how to communicate on set with the folks who hired me, like what kind of light they want, and just having a general more confidence. I mean, the more confidence really kicks it. Yeah, Having more confidence on set just really kicks in because it's like one of those things that you don't even know that you're like... I hate to say the word suffer, but you don't even know you're suffering from. It
0: It also sounds to me though, Ronan, that it was a case of you not throwing in the towel. Yeah, I
3: guess in a... In a in Not manner, giving speaking. up. Yeah, because I, I suppose the, la- the, the opposite, if I had... When I thought as hard as it was, I was like, I don't know if this is going to be a career choice. I think I still had a little bit of time before the final big decision, uh, an ultimate decision needed to be made. But no, I didn't give up. I didn't throw in the towel. I didn't change majors and go back to school because I didn't know while I was at school. I'm like, okay, if I want to work on the set, I knew I didn't need a degree. But there's all these other things that can happen while you're in school. People you can meet, seminars you can attend that are could be important in th- at the end of the day when you actually think about it. But no, I did not give up, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I and this might be a little morbid, but I don't know what other job I'm qualified for if not for one on set. I can't work in an office. I don't think I have. I I don't know any softwares that would allow me to do such. The setting of an office is not where I want to be. I like having my office or my work location be somewhere different every time. Oh, I'm in downtown. I'm in Midtown. I'm in rural South Georgia. Oh, I get to cross the state line for work. That's kind of cool. Like, I hope they're paying a per diem so I can eat on the on the road. But like, that's another conversation. So, alternatively, there's just so many other things that could have been done, but I, I don't have a passion for that. And I'm really lucky to say that, like, I am passionate about. 99% of the work that I do on a day-to-day basis. Or even like when I look back at a year and all the gigs I did, even if they weren't fun, it's like,
4: well, it beats sitting in an office for me. So I can, with that, I can touch on outside of my day job over the past 10 years. I started a couple of small businesses that have really transformed a lot of different things. My skill set, my experiences, And that is that about 10 years ago, a little bit over 10, I started opening up small convenience stores for small business operators, where I basically helped them through the application process through five to six different government municipalities. And then I helped family members do it as well. And I literally think I failed at 70 plus applications before I got an actual approval. And I remember... After failing at maybe 40 to 50 applications, I was so discouraged. I was so beat up. I was so annoyed until one day a light bulb went off and I said, you know, what I learned that didn't work in those 40, 50, 60 applications thus far is knowledge that is now gold going forward. Should I pursue this business for myself? for my family and for others. And I started writing down and jotting down each failure notice I received, what the reason was. And that became my bank of knowledge that I was planning on cashing in on in the future. And I did in some way, shape, or form. I've either been a seed investor or partner or advisor or representative, or maybe. I don't know, 20 to 30 to 50 locations now, of which 12 I've played a key role in now that are all located across Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. And what was the big takeaway, the lesson? The lesson was that I wasn't failing. I was learning. It wasn't working yet. Those were the lessons.
6: As you mentioned, I'm only just past the two year mark in my professional career. And there have certainly been some challenging moments in any job. But I think I've been so grateful that I have really had an overall positive experience. I would say one instance where I was, I think, struggling personally and professionally was this past May, I was planning, as I mentioned, this 20th anniversary party It was for over 300 guests, the 20th anniversary of our firm. So a lot of pressure to make sure it was special and, and perfect for our firm and for our leadership. And then at the same time, I was hiring for my replacement. I was doing my normal day-to-day job as Nelson's assistant, and I was already starting my new responsibilities as senior associate. So I was slowly losing my mind. It was a really challenging time in my position, but it, I found it to be very rewarding. And I was lucky that everything ended up working out in a really great way. So I'm really proud of how I worked through all of that. But I found myself getting overly stressed and overly anxious. And I think that's a lot of pressure that I put on myself that wasn't even coming from my boss or anyone else. So I think that my biggest lesson from that was being able to take a step back, realize that probably things will only get harder from this stage in my <laughs> career, and knowing how to manage that. And I that's my advice to... To anyone out there earlier in their career or still in school, don't put that unnecessary stress on yourself. Just think about, okay, how can I break this down? How can I accomplish these tasks and how can I succeed in them? It's not always that easy, but being able to remove yourself from the situation just for a moment and have that time of calm to think about how to get things done, I think is very important.
2: I would say one of the most difficult parts of my college experience for me was when I was looking for that full-time position. And this was during my last semester of college, And the process was honestly a lot harder than I expected it to be. You know, nobody tells you that at the end of college, you're going to go through six months or more of recruitment season in order to find a job. And even at that point, even if you graduate with a bachelor's degree, you might not necessarily have a job ready to go lined up. You know, everyone goes into college expecting that they'll get a job right away afterwards. So it was a depressing experience for me applying to a lot of positions, but not getting a lot of interviews. But at the end of the day, when I did finally land that offer, it just allowed me to, you know, experience so much more gratitude for being able to land that position and not take it for granted.
7: I think I was definitely struggling at the beginning <laughs> because when, at the beginning, when I was trying to get into different training programs, I was 19 at the time. I was going to all these different interviews. I was thinking the interviews were going well. And then I actually had an interview where someone asked me my age during the interview. And after they asked me my age, I could tell like his entire energy shifted, like his face shifted, everything shifted. And I could tell I didn't get the job like in that moment. And it was really hard at the beginning because I feel like people were looking at the outside and they were looking at what age I was and they were looking at all these external things, but I feel like they weren't taking the time to kind of look beyond that. So I feel like, the beginning was really hard.
0: So how do you deal with the way that perhaps clients may react to you when they see you? Maybe they don't realize that you're only 21 years old. Has that
7: ever caused you to lose a client? That actually, believe it or not, that's never caused me to lose a client because most of the things that I do are over the phone. So people usually don't see my face. It's usually not face to face. It's usually over the phone. And so I actually never, I think another reason why it's never affected me too is because I never accepted that story. I never accepted my age was going to be the reason why I couldn't get things or my age was going to be the reason why I couldn't get opportunities or clients or anything like that. I never accepted that belief. So I think that's another reason why it's never affected me is because I never thought that way about it. But I think maybe if I had accepted that belief and maybe I had kind of took on that way of thinking, I think it probably would have.
0: So what do you think the takeaway lesson is for you from that whole experience of trying to get that first opportunity and just struggling through it?
7: Yeah, I think the takeaway from the beginning is... It's going to be rough at the beginning, you know, it could be very rough at the beginning. But the thing is, it was funny because I was actually talking to some people about the company and that experience with the company that didn't want to hire me. And it was funny because a couple of the people, they actually used to work at that company. And they said they actually did you a favor by not hiring you. So it's pretty funny, but it always, there's always a reason why it didn't work out and why it led you somewhere else is maybe because you're not meant to be at that company. Maybe that would have been a bad fit. And maybe that would have like ruined the whole experience for you or the whole industry for you because you would have been basing it off of that company. So I think it's usually, there's usually more to the story than what we see. So I think being able to reflect later on, it made it easier, but in the moment it wasn't easy.
8: I think I have a few I could touch on. The first one I'll give was during my first internship. I was an intern, which is one of the largest electronic distribution companies, a Fortune 100 company or something like that. And I was working at their headquarters on their engineering teams. And I thought, you know, this was before I got an engineering plus, before I got an entrepreneurship. And so I thought I was going to be a corporate engineer and make lots of money doing that. And the expect, I just didn't fit in, I guess, corporate kind of mindset. You know, okay, I, there's plenty of people, I have lots of friends who are in that environment and it's great for them and it's fitting for them. But just what they were asking of me, I wasn't quite sure if I was willing to put in that much work for a big corporation. And, you know, they're asking for, you know, 60 hours a week, working weekends, working long hours, but then not reporting that properly and kind of overworking the interns a lot. So that, that's typical in the engineering world, unfortunately. And I would be a little bit more straightforward. A lot of people were like, okay, whatever. I mean, I'm an intern. I'll be like, wait, so you want me to finish this project by Friday, but it's going to take me more than 40 hours to do that. So do I put in extra hours to finish the job? And they were like, no, don't, you can't put in extra hours, but you have to finish the project by Friday. And I, it was just back and forth. They wouldn't tell me I had to put in more hours, but I had to. So yeah. I just called them out on that throughout the internship and then they didn't ask me back. And I kind of felt a little bit discouraged at the time because I was like, is this really what I'm signing myself up for going to engineering? And and I wouldn't say that's a typical experience. I mean, I have people who have interned for companies, engineering companies that have been a fantastic experience. But but that was just my start. And so it was like a lot of anxiety about like, did I really choose the right thing? Am I sure I want to do this? And then that's when I switched into engineering plus. And I think what really triggered that was I wasn't sure what I was gonna do anymore. And so I just started talking to people in other degrees and asking them what they did and found some people who were doing engineering plus and that just kind of fit for me. So that was kind of the advice I would give, I guess. And many Many people I know, almost everyone I know in, in school, has changed their degree. It's very common, and you know, you just got to ask around. And too many people, they all of their friends and all the people that they surround themselves with are from their degree, and so it is helpful to branch out and and have even cross, like even across, like like I was in an engineering school, but go to like the arts and go to the English and try to just make friends everywhere. And so then if you have this realization that you're not doing the right thing, you might have a direction to go next.
0: I love that. It's all about cross pollinating.
8: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, also kudos to you for having the courage and the strength of character to like stand up to your supervisor and call bullshit.
8: Yeah, we, we had a big presentation where we I basically told them that this isn't gonna work. The engineering won would have come together. And they asked me to completely redo it. And I was like, this is because you sourced the wrong component. It was I won't dive into it too much, but
0: So you caught a big error in mm-hmm. the work that the I'm sure the full time engineers had made in the design or whatever it was in this product. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. See, I would have hired you right there. I would have been like, this is the guy I want on my team.
8: They were mad I didn't catch it earlier.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. hey, it all worked out. <laughs> it all yeah, worked no,
8: out. I mean, it, it was fine. And to be honest, the overall experience at Air Electronics was good. It just, it was a realization that this environment isn't for me. And that doesn't mean it's not for someone else.
9: One of the roles that I had before coming to Fannie Mae was at a small consulting firm. And the environment there was a little bit different. Certain behaviors were condoned, and I remember getting an assignment where I was on point to conduct a series of data analytics and be able to tell a story based on the data. The mistake I made was I didn't ask enough clarifying questions up front. And so I remember being called into the manager's office and getting feedback that was not in the nicest of ways. (laughs) I first kind of internalized it. I was so embarrassed and just upset with myself for not asking the questions up front that would have allowed me to take the report a different direction. But essentially, I was able to go back to my desk and kind of redo the report in the way with which they originally had wanted to see it. But I think some of the big lessons that I learned from that experience was one, to be as clear as you can upfront about your work before you start. So ask those questions that you need to ask to really ensure that you're understanding what the request is as clearly as you can. And I, I still follow that advice to this day. I think the second portion of the lesson that I learned was how not to provide feedback to someone, because the way the feedback was delivered to me was probably one of the, the most unenjoyable experiences that I've received to date. And I know that is part of being on a team and building capabilities and helping people build the confidence around who they are and what they bring to the table. There has to be a certain set of baseline practices and things that you would say versus say it a different way to ensure that people are still remaining encouraged to do the work. And so that to me was the silver lining of how not to act or how not to be as a professional. And so I think the way with which I was a coach and one of my previous roles definitely allowed me to express that in more ways than one. And so for that, I'm thankful. Unfortunately, that experience wasn't the best experience for me, but I think I came out on the other side knowing how to engage people and give feedback in a way that allows them to feel dignified and respected.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of t for c back.